York. I'm in Bobby Radcliffe's apartment. He's been kind enough to invite me over for a little discussion about his life. So I want to talk to you about your life in music, but as I enter this room, I see that there's more to it than music. You do art, you paint. Um, we can talk about that. But tell me about how music came into your life originally. Well, I think when I was a kid, um, as early as I can remember, um, I had an aunt and a cousin who gave me Elvis records in the early 50s. I was born in 51, so I remember my first music that I really remember hearing was probably that. You know, like Teddy Bear, uh, I had all shook up. Uh, you know, all the, it was the early RCA stuff. And I would get up in a little tree in the in the front yard. We had a willow tree, and I would sing Hound Dog. And you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And I was a little kid, you know, five, four or five years old. But you connected to it. I did. Um, and my my dad played a little bit of piano. Most you know he played mostly standards and stuff like Cole Porter and uh, <clears throat> Gershwin. So I always remember hearing you know him playing piano in the house and doing stuff like T for Two and someone to watch over me. And uh, and my mom was more into Broadway stuff. You know, you'd hear music coming out. Usually it would be Broadway. You know, Hello Dolly or whatever was the, the happening Broadway thing at the time. So the love of music led you to the guitar, or how did the guitar come into your hands? You know, I never really thought about guitar until I got older. It wasn't until really the Beatles, I think. <clears throat> and I remember, I remember seeing Ricky Nelson and his band on TV before that, but with James Burton playing. And I always was sort of scared because he was so good. And I remember the guitar seemed, in somebody's hands like that, it seemed like kind of foreboding, you know? Mm -hmm. like, sure. <laughs> like, And I remember when I heard the Beatles, there wasn't a lot of soloing. It was mostly chords and singing. But I think the imagery of that, you know, it was the, I wanted to get a guitar because it looked cool, you know? And since the Beatles were on TV and all the bands on Ed Sullivan after them were all, guitar-oriented bands, I thought, I've got to get one of those, you know. It's, it's amazing how much that, I know it's not just the Beatles, but how much impact the Beatles on Ed Sullivan had, and so many musicians, and so many musicians have told me how much, yeah. you know, they were influenced by it, and that's what they wanted to do as soon as they saw it. Well, you know, I, I think it's because I was born in 51, so I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm that mid-period baby boomer, you know, like, a lot of people who were in my bands, for instance, Dick Heitzie, uh, Danny Gatton, the guys that I knew back in D.C. were all guys who were born earlier. So they grew up with, you know, their influences were before the Beatles. So would it would be like, you know, uh, uh, doo-wop, uh, the folk movement of the time, too. Uh, and Dickensia had a, he had a band with uh, Yorma Kalkanen and Jack Cassidy. And Danny Gatton was playing guitar with him. He was the youngest member. So those guys were like 10 years older. So they were more influenced by, uh, well, rock and roll, of the early, you know, the rock and roll of the 50s. And then they probably did doo-wop a little bit, and they probably did, uh, and then the folk thing came in. I that, was, that was a big deal, you know, Hoot Nanny and all the shows that were on national television yeah. here in the States. I don't know much about the D.C. scene, but it seems like there's a lot of great musicians coming out of D.C., is that correct to say? Well, yeah, I mean, there's always been a really good uh, amount of players who came out of there. I mean, starting back in the 20s, Duke Ellington was from D.C. Um, and, uh, you know, you had a lot of horn players. Uh, uh, some of the famous bebop guys were from there. Um, 
Charlie Parker's, uh, God, what was his name? Anyway, it'll come to me in a moment, but there were a lot of, a lot of people, <clears throat> and also a lot of R&B people. Marvin Gaye was from right. UC. Yeah. Um, and you had a lot of people in the 60s, so Jim Morrison, John Phillips, uh, Mama Cass. Um, so what was it like growing up there? Well, I was lucky that, you know, that I guess I was a 50s kid, so I got exposed to a lot of music. There also was a big bluegrass town. You know, bluegrass <clears throat> was kind of like the the music that you would hear kind of all around because it was a, you know, that and country music. So you, you, had, you had a filtering of, of a lot of different styles of music. You had R&B. There were two really good R&B stations. There was a guy named Bob Terry, the Nighthawk, who did lots of, uh, like late at night, he would play Elmore James, you know, and he'd start yelling like, you know, yeah, you know, go Elmore. And I remember, you know, it was pretty cool. And then you'd flip the dial and you hear WDON, and they'd be playing, you know, Johnny Paycheck or, you know, or before that, or they'd be like Johnny Cash or crossover. And that was that period, you know, where, where like in the late 50s, early 60s, you, you would have people crossing over. And you'd hear on a soul station or an R&B station, you'd hear blues. And on a country station, you'd hear crossover people like Elvis. And... So there was much more of an intersection there. There wasn't a lot of differentiation. This is a silly question, but when you, when you talk about the DJ, the Nighthawk, is that where the band's, the Nighthawk's name comes from? Yeah, I often wondered that. I never asked Mark, actually. Could be, you know. Uh, Mark and I knew each other from childhood. <laughs> he was, Mark was like four or five years older than me, and um, we both went to this school called Longfellow School for Boys. And... Um, I remember Mark looked just basically the same as he does now. He had sideburns, you know, and his hair was up. I remember he was really into Robert Mitchum, you know. Really? We'd be on the school bus, and he was like, he would always be up in the front kind of commanding the, the attention of the, every, all the younger kids, you know, and he would say, like, Thunder Road is the greatest movie, and, and it's got a great song, too, you know. And, and then they'd be saying, he'd be start singing, the, you know, there and there was thunder, thunder down Thunder Road. Which I think Mitchum sang. But anyway, um, yeah. So I knew Mark from back then. I was eight, and he was probably 12 or 13. Wow. So musically, you picked up the guitar, and where are you heading with your guitar? Like, what are you playing at that point? I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it starts somewhere, right? Well, as I told you earlier, I'm dyslexic, and... When I was growing up in the 50s and early 60s, they didn't know what it was, so um, my parents sent me to a classical guitar instructor, and she sat me down with sheet music and said, I want you to play like this, you know, and the correct hand style and having your one foot up on a pedestal, your little, you know, your foot up on a stand. And I was supposed to be tablature, and I couldn't. And we were supposed to, I guess I was supposed to be playing Bach. And... Um, I, she looked at me and she said, why can't you get this? And I said, I, I can't figure out the notes, I'm, you know, the tablature. I kind of got a little of it, but I couldn't get past it. It reminded me of mathematics. Right. And I was like a kid put back a year because of my uh, dyslexia. And they didn't know, I'm sure there probably were places, for instance, up here in New York that would have seen that, but not in Washington at that time. So, so she, she thought I had no talent, I think, and 
And then she said, what kind of music do you like to play? And I said, I want to play like Jimmy Reed and Muddy Waters. She said, who are they? <laughs> you know? Okay, so how old are you at this point? I said, blues. She says, oh, you mean like Peter, Paul, and Mary? And I said, no, that's folk, <laughs> you know. She says, well, you know, isn't it folk music? I said, well, kind of, but it's, but it's blues folk music. So anyway, I started, <clears throat> you know, reading the back of Rolling Stones albums, and, and I would go with my little friends from school, and we'd go to Waxy Maxies in D.C., which was near the Howard Theater, and we would buy uh, anything we saw on the back of a Stones album, we would buy. Some Harpo records, Muddy records. Uh, I remember I bought the Best of Muddy Waters, and whatever Jimmy Reed albums I could get my hands on on VJ. And how old are you at this point? I was 12. What do you think it was at the age of 12 to be able to connect to the blues? Um, I think there was a, probably a few reasons, actually. I think one was that being dyslexic, I couldn't figure out Beatle chords. Um, I couldn't even figure out a lot of folk uh, songs. I had a real hard time with some rock and roll stuff. So when I heard blues, I said, I can understand this. It sounds like they're doing something fairly simple. So I started off doing like Jimmy Reed things, you know, bump, ba bump, ba bump, which are fairly simple but the problem was I didn't know a lot of like ninth chords at that point and and I would go along and I'm, guys in different bands that I'd be playing with would show me a chord here and there somebody showed me a seventh chord and then I, my friend Frank Radis showed me a ninth chord and I was probably about 14 or 15 then and uh, Frank had played with a lot of great DC soul bands like the Showman and uh, Phil Flowers who were really big you know, DC uh, R&B acts. Um, DC was famous for its soul bands back then. They had some really, some big stars who came out of there, and oh, Billy Stewart. Right. But Frank showed me my first ninth chord, and then uh, I was in a band called the Yarbs with uh, Chris Pestalozzi was the band leader, and he showed me some chords too. So I was a very slow learner. Um, I was the kind of guy, in the early bands I was in, they used to, they used to say, now, when you get to a chord that you don't know, just turn your guitar off on the knob, you know, on the guitar, and then just play a solo, because I could do that. But I, I just didn't know a lot about chords. And how is it that you could do a solo? I mean, forgive me for asking this. Well, because I used to sit down with Ventures records and play along with Ventures stuff and just hear the notes and just try to imitate them as best I could. Like Walk, Don't Run or you know, a pipeline or whatever song was on a, on a, any venture albums, I would just play along with it. But I really couldn't play chords that well. By the way, Jeff Beck was like that. I read an interview with a guitar player with him years ago, and he started the same way. He started off as a single note player because he couldn't figure out chords. Mm -hmm. He's done well for himself. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's really all that unusual. It's like right. it's like Charlie Parker thought <clears throat> all music was in one key until. I think it was Efridge Ware, a guitar player, told him that, you know, Charlie, music is done in different keys. And Bird, before that, had been playing uh, alto, but he thought all music was written in one common key. So, yeah. did, once you figured out the solos, and I guess you would learn them, um, at what point did, they, did you make it your own? Like, tell me about the transition between copying a solo and then getting to a point where you could now improvise and put in your own twist on things. Well, I never could I never could really completely imitate anybody, you know, the way some people could. There were some excellent guitar players and 
fabulous players in my hometown who were, who were in my age group. Uh, Nils Lofgren. Nils was always winning Battle of the Bands, and he was like the, the hottest guitar player in our little county, Montgomery right. County. And there was a guy named Bill Skinner who could actually imitate anything he heard on the radio. He'd hear it once and be able to duplicate it, like whether it was a Jeff Beck solo on, you know, <clears throat> whatever, you know, early Yardbird stuff. And I couldn't play like that. So what I would try to do was approximate blues guys that I could kind of figure out. Uh, uh, Buddy Guy, B.B. Um, King, uh, and then and Magic Sam, you know. He came a little bit later, but at first it was Buddy Guy. Um, and I would, I would literally would take the record. It's something I, I taught guitar for 30 years, and I would always tell students just, you know, if you have to go over the one part of it, just just play the band until it turns, you know, just back up on it. Learn, if you only make three notes out of the, uh, out of a part of a Buddy Guy solo, you know, that, and that's it for that part, and then come back maybe an hour later or a day later, you know, but don't get stuck on it if you can't figure out the whole solo. And I would do that. I would actually go like little pieces at a time. And over weeks, months, years, I've got to be able to piece together what he was doing. It would never be exactly like his solo, though. Mm -hmm. you know. But you wouldn't really want it to be. I would love to have been yeah. able to do that, of course, yeah. I mean, I wish I could have played like the Beatles, too, or, or anybody, you know. But I just didn't have that kind of, uh, you know, my brain's wired the way it is. You know, it's probably just from dyslexia. But in some ways it was kind of cool because I think I sort of, I ended up playing the way that I do. Uh, in spite of like my inability well, to completely imitate, you know. Because I was going to ask you if 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 I, I know that it would have been a stumbling block and it would have made learning difficult. But was there any, any advantage to having dyslexia in in the arts that you pursued? Well, my my bass player out in California, um, and and good friend Chris uh, Matthews, and I've talked about it. He's dyslexic and. He and I talk about it a lot. We, you know, he says, which, you know, it's it is probably the way we the way we play is probably part of that because we hear things differently. We hear different combinations of notes. We hear, you know, like in painting, I I see different combinations of uh, of colors and forms. You know, so it's a lot about uh, how how our brains process stuff as opposed to maybe somebody who can just hear something and imitate it. You know. So in a, in a way, I'm probably more of an assimilator. You know, I, I have a lot of styles. It's like a, like Bruce Lee used to say, people would say, what style do you have? He says, I'm all styles. I don't have any real style. Mm -hmm. You know, he really didn't. He was, a, he, you know, his Jeet Kundu was supposed to be, you know, kind of a combination of everything. So as, as the years passed by, did, make thing, did it make, was it easy to learn? It got easier as I went along because I kind of invented my little process of taking a record, slowing it down. Not even slowing it down, it was because we didn't have that. Well, you could put it on 33 if it was a 45, but mostly it was just you take the needle and hop it off, you know, and pause it, just pick it up, pause it, little Sears uh, right. record player. And then you go back to the solo again, and you just do that every day. You know, and depending on the day, say if you could put in a half hour or an hour, um, and you'd finally get the, get a solo pretty close. You know, uh, the harder ones to play like were it was really Magic Sam style because he played with his fingers. 
And before that, I'd been playing with a pick. And, uh, but I really was so enamored with him because you have to remember at that time period when I got into Sam's playing, uh, the English sound had dominated for a couple of years, you know. And then when Hendrix came on the scene, it was all over. So we're talking 67, 66? You're talking, yeah, 66, 67. And when I heard uh, West Side Soul, I just went, this is the direction I want to go in, a clean sound, no distortion, um, you know, just using reverb and, and, that, and having that driven sound that he had. But it's, it was very clean. It was not an English sound. There was no Hendrix in it or anything like that. As much as I like those guys, I, I actually drove Hendrix around at a, a psychedelic theater we had in my hometown. And I was amazed by it, but I knew that everybody would go that direction. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, for myself, it was a dead end. And also, I didn't have that kind of talent to be able to play like Hendrix. I mean, that, he had incredible you know, technical facility. And, um, and I just... I just kind of knew what I could do best, which was blues, you know. Simpler forms are just easier for me. Right. And I, and I could do that, you know. It was something that I was, I could take simpler forms uh, and, and work with them. And then when I got into uh, playing a little bit later than that, I started adding on stuff. I was playing uh, black nightclubs in D.C. And I, I was playing with all black groups and black clubs, and I had to start playing soul music, which I liked anyway, but uh, so I had, I had to start adding in more R&B and more and more of it. And some places too, I would be playing country country bars, country kind of country western type places, and I would play, you know, Elvis stuff or Buck Owens, and well, add that in. So when you played in the black clubs, were you easily accepted? I actually was, and I think because I was such a young guy, I was basically 18 years old, or had just turned 18, and I was playing with. Uh, TNT Tribble was my drummer then, um, who had played with Big Maybell and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of really great, uh, you know, early R&B swing type groups and stuff out of the D.C. area. And uh, who else? I had Billy Clark uh, on tenor. and I had, I had a series of different bass players and stuff at that time. But I was playing mostly in uh, southeast, southwest, uh, northeast D.C., and uh, down around Q Street, and gosh, just about everywhere, Georgia Avenue, uh, Buddy's Place, which was a place kind of near the Maryland line. Uh, and they were all basically our complete places, or they were just clubs I would walk in, and I'd say, do you want a band? And I'd say, I've come in and play for basically nothing, and if we can build it up, you know, you can pay me you know, whatever, 100 bucks or something, 25 so, per man. At this point, are you thinking this is what you're going to do for your rest yeah. of life? Yeah. By the time I got out of high school, I knew that, like, I, I, I tried roofing, doing roofing work, <laughs> you know, short order cook, you know, and uh, cleaning pots and pans and, you know, all that stuff that we all do when we get out of high school. And I was really lousy at all of that. I mean, I was probably the, the worst busboy the planet and I and like I was a terrible roofer I was a bad carpenter you know <laughs> like and I remember my mom kept thinking well why don't you go to art school so but I, by that point I was in band so much I was playing every, almost every night or, or at least five nights a week and uh, <clears throat> she sent me to a guy to 
takes my portfolio, my art portfolio, and the guy looked in my grades. He wanted to know, you know, my uh, scholastic average right when I got out of high school. And he said, you'll never make it in the commercial art world because you have to know algebra and geometry. And he said, unless you want to try being a painter, but you'll probably, like, end up starving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was right out of high school. I'm literally right out. And so uh, I would work these little jobs, like short order, cook stuff, and I was terrible at it. So anyway, I I, uh, I just was playing more and more, and I was, I was playing five nights a week, six nights a week. So I was lucky, and I, I, I had some really other some great clubs that were in like the Northwest area too, the far end and uh, uh, Mr. Henry's Tenley Circle. There was a whole little circuit of clubs you could play and then I had my own that I made up and then the Child Herald came a little later than that in 73, I think. And I had my own little club, which was a great thing. Like, you know, I remember seeing Rock and Johnny when, when I would play with him back in the late 90s and he was playing at Smoke Daddy. Right. When I had my own version of that, and it was called Cousin Nick's, and it was great because it was like a place that I could go in there and play every week for, I guess, three nights a week. I had Friday, Saturday, and Sundays. And I, you know, you play with the same guys over and over again, and you play other clubs. And, you know, you have that chance to play four, so, four and five sets a night for years. So I was fortunate that I had that, and... Um, I feel sorry for younger players today because they don't have they don't have that kind of training area, you know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they don't have clubs they can play in all the time doing set after set after set. I mean, it was a grueling thing because it was a lot of work, but when you're young, you can handle that. But it was the experience of being able to play so much and you had to have a really large uh amount of songs that you could play. You know, you really couldn't repeat yourself. So, um you develop these huge, uh, you know, portfolio of, of millions of tunes, millions, but I probably had about 300, and I still have some of my old books from that period, and I, I still pull them out, and I've got three or 400 old songs that I can always go through and pull them out at any point and do them. I wonder, before getting to that point, why you were learning, was there ever a moment where you learned something that just kind of pushed you way forward or just made a major major difference in in your pursuit of becoming a musician? And it could be something really simple as learning how to bend a note or whatever, but was there anything that you just thought Yeah, there was. Yeah, bending notes was a big thing. I remember when I probably Bloomfield would have been the guy that I really would have heard doing that probably first. Um, And then the English guys too. You know, Clapton, uh, Beck, um, so the and of course Hendrix and stuff, but and then Buddy Guy, but but I think that part, I think hearing it from Bloomfield at first, I think he was a big influence, you know. And he's still, I I feel he's one of the most underrated blues guys. I mean, the guy was from Chicago, mm-hmm. and if you really listen to him, a lot of his solos sound like Magic Sam, you know, and his courting and stuff. And and he knew him because he ran. He was a friend of mine. Actually, co-ran the Fickle Pickle with him. Um, you know, right on. The, I was right off the campus of the University of Chicago, and um, Bloomfield would get Sam to play there all the time. You know, he'd bring him over from the West Side. And there's a lot of stuff that reminds me in Bloomfield's playing of uh, 
of Sam. Well, let's talk about Sam, because I get the impression Magic Sam was a huge influence on you. He was probably the biggest influence I had as far as a role model and also a musical model. And plus, since I got to know him, he was a really nice person. And I, I had not had anybody that really, uh, that I could really beat. He was the first real guitar hero that I met. And he invited me into his home and stuff. And I'd stay there on the west side and, and South Harding Street. And that meant a lot to me. You know, it was like, remember too, I was pretty young. I was like 17. And, Okay, but before that... 16 and a half or whatever. You saw him at the Ann Arbor yeah. Blues Festival? That's, that was the first time you saw him live? That's the first time I saw him live. And then it was after that. I mean, when I saw that, I said, that's what I want to do. So everything you saw, everything you'd heard on Ann record... Ann Arbor blew my mind, yeah. It really did. Ann Arbor had a huge effect. I mean, I, I, we did an interview, uh, Al Copley and I, and uh, some of the other guys from the original Roomful... Uh, uh, Pinky, the bass player, and, you know, and, and they, they, with, they, what we had was a reunion thing from this Blues Brothers thing we did when the Blues Brothers had wanted us to, to be their backup group. Right. We later found out they also asked Curtis Salgado and all these other guys, you know, but we did their first show live at the, at the Lone Star, but we had a reunion gig, and one of the things that was funny was that Roomful, uh, they really turned their heads when they went to Ann Arbor uh, because they didn't realize that that blues could have horns in it. <laughs> so I think they went to the 70 Ann Arbor, if, if, if I'm, unless I'm mistaken. But yeah, they heard Mighty Joe Young with horns. And they went, wow. It was like a revelation to them. Because before that, they were basically a guitar or in a band. Right. Yeah. And um, I just think that's kind of funny. But I really think Magic Sam and I think that, that generation of Chicago players had a huge impact on, on guys in that age group that I'm sort of in, you know, give or take four or five years. Right. So, so you see him live, and it blows you away. So I read that somewhere that, I don't know if you met him there, but I read somewhere that you went to Chicago to see him. Afterwards. Yeah. Well, I actually talked to him briefly at, at Ann Arbor, <laughs> but uh, I didn't get a number or anything like that. I actually went to Chicago to find him, and I went to the Jazz Record Mart. And I walked in there, and it was probably uh, Jim O'Neill, and uh, it was probably Bruce Miglauer. And, I, and they, I went in there, and I said, where can I find Magic Sam? They kind of chuckled. You know, they said, well, he's in the hospital if you really want to find him, you know. You know, I had my khakis on and my little, you know, I had a little icon. What do they call those shirts? A little sports shirt with the alligator on it? <laughs> Eyes on yeah. or whatever. <laughs> You know, I looked like yeah. a little collegiate kid, you know, because I was like 17, whatever, years old, uh, or 17 and a half, whatever. And um, I went to Cook County. I took the bus over there, and I, I asked the registry where he was and what, where I could find him. And he was on a big, huge ward, you know, on some huge floor with probably 50 or 60 beds. And I went over to his, and it had a little number on it, and then it said Magid. S. Magic. And I just sort of stood there because he was asleep, and finally he looked up and he said, Who are you? And I said, Well, you know, I'm so and so, and I came from Washington, D.C. to find him. <laughs> I find that amazing. Yeah, and he, you know, he, he was very nice, actually. You know, he said, Well, <clears throat> you know, uh, 
uh, I can't do much right now, but here's my phone number and my address. And you know, why don't you call me when, you know, uh, I'll be out of the hospitals sometime soon. So, you know, you can come stay at my place with my wife and kids, you know. And he was with Leola, and uh, they, they weren't married, actually. They were it was common law marriage, and uh, they had kids. So I took him up on it, and I actually went out there um, another time, and I stayed there with him and, and, and the kids and uh, Leola, I guess, for a week, week and a half or whatever, and, uh, you know, and then he died, you know, and then I would go out, and I still go out. I went to the wake, I went to the funeral, I went to the services. And, um, but that, I guess that week and a half that I spent with him was really what helped me the most. Because here's this guy who let me be, in, be a part of his family life. Mm -hmm. And he would take me to the blues clubs. He took me to the Alex Club. Otis Rush was playing there. Mighty Joe was playing there. Um, God, then I would go over to other places. Now, he was actually tending bar, you know, at that time. Over off of uh, Pulaski was the, uh, what was it called? Uh, the L&A Lounge or, uh, well, the Alex Club was the 1815 Club. So it was, it was this little place off Pulaski and he was tending bar there. It was only about a block and a half from where he lived. And, um, the LNA Lounge, it was called. And Magic Slim was actually the house band. Really? And Sam was basically earning his income at that point from being a bartender. Do you think that anyway. trip to Chicago and seeing these people and hanging out with Magic Sam, was that necessary for you, a growth for your pursuit of being a blues musician? Yeah, a lot. I, I mean, could was... you have learned something there that you wouldn't have learned staying in D.C.? or? In is that romanticizing it too No, much? no, I definitely would not have ever learned that in D.C. I've had, I had not had the Chicago experience, experiences that I did have. No, I never, I would have had some other kind of style of music. Who knows, I may not have even stayed in music. But he had that much of an impact on me. And then, of course, I met other people through him, like Joe Young and uh, you know, all the sidemen that worked with him, Ernie Gatewood. And Ernie, and those guys were such nice people. They were, Hey, come on! You know they called me Robert because I wasn't using Bobby as a as a, as a name at that point. So they said, "Come on, Robert!" You know, and they would take me to the other clubs, and I'd go here. You know, Otis over at some small bar, uh, and where I'd go here, you know, whoever was playing. I remember one night there was a jam session at the Flash Lounge, uh, which was. Uh, God, I can't remember the exact... It was somewhere off Pulaski also. And I remember that night, I think I met three guitar juniors. It was Sammy Lawhorn, I guess, and then there was, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, Guitar Junior Johnson, you know, Luther. And then uh, there was uh, Lonnie Brooks. And I remember being confused because I was like, well, they were all giving me their cards. I said, Guitar Junior, you know. <laughs> like, I had not met them at that point. I didn't know who they were. You know, and it was uh, it was actually an Eddie Clearwater jam session night, and Eddie ran and Andy, Eddie was a sweet guy, and still is. He would bring me up on stage. He'd say, "Well, we got a, a young man all the way from Washington D.C. You know, he's going to play. What are you going to play for us?" And I'll never forget. I tried to play an Albert Collins song, "The Freeze." And I barely could play it. I was terrible, <clears throat> and I knew it. And why did you decide to take 
use that <clears> side? I don't know. I, I really don't know, I guess. Wow. And then, but afterward, all those guys were really nice to me. And see, like where I was from in D.C., but D.C. was a very competitive guitar, <clears throat> guitar place. Everybody would, like, if you had a hot lick, you turn your back or you turn your guitar to the side. Everybody was into this one-upmanship, you know, and, and um, <clears throat> it was all about, like, being the fastest gunslinger. Chicago guys weren't like that. Not the ones that I knew, anyway, and not, maybe not in that period, maybe before they were. But, no, they, they didn't have that, you know, hey, kid, you know, you got to learn this on your own, get away. They were, like, the opposite. They were welcoming. They would want, they would want to hang out. They would ask me to come over to their places and stuff. I remember listening to records at Ernie Gatewood's house, and uh, he'd show me little things here and there and tell me stories. And then I'd go over to uh, Letha Jones' uh, apartment. She was Johnny Jones' widow, the great piano player. And she would tell me stories, and she'd say how Sam developed. And she'd say, you know, uh, Johnny, my, husband, my, my my husband who died, helped Sam a lot to develop his style. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. He, he turned him on to all kinds of stuff that he had not heard because he was from kind of a hillbilly town. Right. Granada, Mississippi, was actually known for sort of uh, black fiddle music, kind of like hill music. Mm-hmm. And um, when he came to Chicago, as, I guess at 12, people say that he had a hillbilly style. You know, and if you hear the early records, you know, like 21 Days in Jail and stuff, you kind of get a hint of that, you know, and uh, that boogie thing that he always had. Right. So, you know, who knows? Maybe that's something that came with him from Granada. You know? I mean, Magic Slim's from Granada also, but he <clears throat> he tends not to have as much of that. Uh, but maybe he does, you know. So then you go back, and then is it around that time you decide to move to New York, or is it...? Well, I played in the D.C. area. I modeled my bands on Sam's and Otis's and people like that, and, and Mighty Joe's band. And that's when I started these little clubs, you know, like Cousin Nick's, and I had this whole circuit of other places that I was playing. But it was all modeled along the lines of a small band, uh, either a trio or a quartet, you know, maybe one horn. Um, then after a while, I had uh, another guitar. I had Danny Gatton in the band when he was kind of on a period where he wasn't playing with... Uh, he had left Liz Meyer's group, which was a progressive bluegrass band. And uh, a really great group. Um, they were very nice people. Good. They were. I love them. They were really a really great band. There was a lot of guys. Bill Hancock was the bass player. So anyway, Danny was sort of a hot sensation at that mm-hmm. point. But he wasn't working, so he was in my band with uh, Dick Heinz. He was playing uh, piano, and uh, Ralph McDuffie was playing tenor. So that was a fairly large group. And. Uh, but that lasted maybe in and out for maybe a year. Um, with Danny, it probably about six months. But so whatever a- aggregation that I could handle and afford, you know, I'd have a bigger band for a certain venue that paid more. Right. And uh, so it came down to economics and stuff like that. But when I moved to New York, it was I had hit sort of a uh, I had some personal problems in my life. You know, I was of that generation too. There were you know you the you had a lot of drugs, you had a lot of alcohol. Right. You know, and I was around a lot of heavy hitters and heavy drinkers and stuff, and both in D.C. and Chicago. And 
I guess I thought if I moved away, I would like somehow hit the big time and maybe be, you know, make some money and have a secure life. I, I came to New York and I basically kind of bottomed out, you know. I would think that coming to New York would have been a tough place to go to. Am well, I, it was, and I, I had also I had a bad uh, love affair that kind of went sour, you know. And, <clears throat> and there were a number of factors involved, you know. And uh, I, so I got to New York in '77, and uh, the, and also the punk thing was sort of an enticing thing because it was, to me, it was like another, it was like another extension of, uh, well, blues, R&B, rock and roll. Um, it was something new and fresh. Like before that, I had done reggae stuff. I had reggae was part of my repertoire. When I first met Kim Wilson and uh, and Jimmy Vaughn and uh, you know the early Thunderbirds, they were like, going, "Wow, you played reggae." And years later, when I ran into Kim, I said, I said, I hope you meant that as a compliment. He said, I did. At the time, as a kid, you know, when I was younger, I had thought like, that it was a put-down. I wasn't at all. But I just thought it was all the same stuff. I still do. I don't really differentiate between reggae, country music. It's all the same stuff. And they, all that stuff cross-fertilizes anyway. You know, cross, mm -hmm. what do they call it? Cross-pollinization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody really is one thing. And that's what I got the most from Magic Sam. When he said, I said, how do I become a really good player? He says, listen to everything. And I said, like, what do you mean? He said, well, like, listen to country music, listen to rock and roll, listen to classics, whatever that meant. Listen to everything, gospel, you know. And I took him literally on that. And I noticed that the other guys, when in Chicago were doing that too. I never heard a Chicago blues band ever when I was out there that ever played 12-bar blues all night. Right. Never. I never did. I, mean, I think that's such a a misconception that lives on today that, you know, <laughs> you know, God bless the people who are kind of preservationists and purists, but I would go nuts if I had to do that. You know, if, if I couldn't mix it up with, uh, you know, soul numbers and... Uh, you know, rockabilly-ish, you know, country things and, and, and everything else in between, I'd go crazy. But is it easy? I mean, I, I totally agree, but uh, as a non-musician, is it easy to delve into other genres when, when you've kind of dedicated yourself to the blues or to rock or to country? Yeah, but you have to remember that my models of reference were people like Sam and Otis, <clears throat> Buddy Guy, they were all mixing it up. Right. So it wasn't that weird for me. It wasn't because I saw them and I was using them as reference points. I said, well, if they're doing it, that means I can do it. Was it ever a point where you thought, <clears throat> my audience might not appreciate this? Or no, that... because there, there were, the early blues audiences that I was playing to were on black clubs, didn't differentiate that way. Um, if anything, they thought it was kind of cool that a young white kid was playing blues and R&B mm -hmm. and soul numbers and stuff. Um, and I don't think any of the other public that I had over, you know, if I went on the, on the northwest side to the white side of town, they didn't differentiate it, as long as it was danceable and they had a good time. So there wasn't a lot of that division. I think the divisions came later. Okay, which makes sense. Yeah. So you moved to New York, and you're kind of intrigued by punk. Did you ever follow through with that? Or? Well, I was in some, I was in some bands. Uh, it was sort of a fallow period club-wise in, in Manhattan at that time. And uh, there was only a couple of blues clubs. There was this place, The Fugue, 
where Paul Osher was playing. I, I ended up playing bass uh, for him a couple of nights, and then there was another place called Broadway Charlie's, and that was about it. And uh, so, why why New York? I mean, what, what made you decide? It was the closest big city to D.C. Oh, okay. You know, you get four four and a half five hours on a train, and uh, um, I looked up a couple of people's numbers that I had and slept on somebody's floor for a while until I got a, a loft over in the East Village, which was pretty hip. It was a, it was a loft, and the guy that had the loft with the lease was a, a, a free jazz player, um, Mike Mahaffey, and he had played with a lot of heavyweights. And it was really kind of exciting. It was like New York at that time was a really exciting place to be because you had free jazz players. You know, Some of the early jams that I went to were run by... Um, Art Blakey Jr. Hmm. And then Al Haig was playing across the street at this place, One Fifth Avenue. Al was, you know, was Charlie Parker's piano player for a number of years with Tommy Potter and, you know, Max Verge. And this was like a whole, a whole other world. It was like almost sudden, it was like all these guys that I had had references in D.C. about. There were some great D.C. jazz players and clubs that I played in were jazz clubs, too. Harold's Rogan Char, and there was a lot of jazz clubs. Tapu Foolery was a club I had a residency in for almost four years, and that was hardcore. Uh, Shirley Horn, Shirley Scott played there regularly. Um, Nathan Page, a really great jazz player, guitar player. But when I got to New York, it was a mind blower. It was like, holy crap, there's everybody here. You know, Art Pepper. Um, uh, it was just like this huge scene, you know, we had painters hanging out at clubs and, and writers and poets, and I had not been around that environment to that extent. Would you accept it easily? Like, is it easy to come into New York and start? Well, like, apparently I was. I mean, when I first came, there wasn't a lot of blues work, so I, I was, I got a job at the Strand Bookstore, and that was like a haven for artists and musicians, so people would say, oh, you play guitar? I'd say, yeah, and I want to be in a, my band, and I would be in some punk band or a new wave group. Uh, some of the guys from uh, a band called DNA, Robin Crutchfield, and, uh, and then I met Dave Hostra, who became my bass player for a number of years through, through that, through him, and we all had a, we had a punk band, kind of a new wave band, really. And we would play the Mud Club, you know, for, no, for nothing. <laughs> like... You know, you'd play all these little places. That were, you know. And then finally I got into places like, uh, I, I, I was like the first blues band to really play at CBGB's, I think. Mm-hmm. And Hilly Crystal really liked my, my band a lot. And I had Dave Hostra and uh, a really great drummer. I guess it was, um, it'll come to me in a bit. I had Dickie Dworkin. It was part of the downtown scene of New York, they called it. It was the downtown jazz or... Uh, I basically had part of a band of the Microscopic Septet who were doing a lot of kind of, um, well, they call it downtown jazz, but uh, it was basically just young guys who were looking for their way through, through what, you know, what, they, what they wanted to make with the jazz that was happening at that time. And they were influenced by everything from Captain Beefheart to Zappa and, uh, you know, and Miles and, and Bird and Diz and all that stuff kind of stuck together and Ornette. So it was cool. I mean, because there was music on every block. There was a club at least on almost every corner in the village. 
You could play every night of the week. We were playing, I was playing probably six nights a week for probably 10 or 15 years. You said you, you initially left to escape bad habits. Did that, were you able to leave that? And it took me a couple of years to get off all this stuff, and finally I did. And that's really when my guitar style, I think, kind of really uh, became more my own. You know, before that, I would get a load on and, you know, try to, and I would think I was playing like Bird on a guitar, you know, when really I was probably just, you know, phoning it in or faking it. And when I got here, and when I really got, had to get, I was forced to get sober, and I finally did. And that's when my style started to really solidify. Now, would it be correct to say that you would have concentrated a lot more on the guitar playing and less on the whatever choice of drugs or drinking that you were doing? So Well, I got off everything. You know, it took me a few years to get all the junk out of my system. But by the time I cut my first album, for, which actually was a series of recordings I did for both, and uh, I guess it was Columbia University Radio, uh, Ashley Kahn had a show called uh, Tuesday's Just As Bad at Columbia. So we cut some tracks there. Basically, the idea was to just cut them to give out. Back in those days, we made a little cassette tape to send to a club to get a gig, right. which is what they were for. And then I went to NYU, and they had a little small lab down there, uh, a teaching lab, and I recorded the other tracks. So what happened, a friend of ours in D.C. said had the idea of putting them out as an LP. And that came out, it's, uh, it's never come out on CD, but it came out as an album. And a lot of my friends from D.C. helped uh, finance it because, I, you know, I was you know, living hand to mouth, basically. I was right. paying back the IRS for all the money that I had not paid them and, and back taxes and stuff. So, you know, so my old D.C. friends came to my help and, uh, and we put this album out called Early in the Morning on AOK Records. And that was my first uh, vinyl. I've cut a single in 1974 for Bill uh, Hancock. He had revived the old Aladdin label. And uh, it, it pops up on Goldmine every once in a while. It's long, Long Day. That's an old uh, Amos Milburn song. And then I had, I covered one of Sam's tunes on there. You know, when I first met you, I forget the name of that, but uh, mm -hmm. you look so fine. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that was my first LP, and that really kind of got me back and playing full time. And back to the blues. Yeah, back to blues, black, and but by that point, my my style had solidified into R and B and all these influences that I'd already had, but I, it came together. And uh, that album is, I, I think, still is one of the best ones I ever made, and it's a good cross section of stuff. I mean, there's everything from, you know, there's soul, blues. So you is know, it a typical of thing of it's the best one because you've had a lifetime up until that point to gather that material and then present it versus the next album, which you might have had a few years to work on? Like what made it that, that first well, album? Well, there was a span of time between when I made the first album on AOK, you know, it was 1984, and I had uh, a really great producer uh, who was trying to get me a record deal. Um, and what had happened is during we had a year contract and we shopped it around all the major labels. We had gone up to the one of the I think it was the record plant where we went and recorded demos and stuff. And we got turndowns from everybody. We would get these really great polite letters from people like Clive Davis and you know and uh, 
it was actually kind of cool because they were actually really nice because they knew my producer and his father had been a famous filmmaker, a documentary guy for PBS and stuff. And, um, and it was interesting because, you know, we had the industry going crazy over me for about, I don't know, three or four weeks. And we had ICM uh, shopping us. So <laughs> it was pretty incredible. Like, ICM was at that time the largest entertainment uh, booking agency in the world. They were handling everybody from Eddie Murphy to, uh, you know, I think the Thunderbirds, everybody was with ICM back in those days. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we, we didn't get around to that. Finally, what happened was uh, after a year, nothing had happened. So I think what happened, the last people we saw was Blacktop and uh, Alligator. And Bruce Iglauer came down one night and heard me, and we gave him the tape. And it turned out years later, he told me that he really didn't like that tape that much because he thought it was overproduced. And it, it, it really kind of was. It had more of a distorted sort of sound to it, with too much, maybe too much compression on the guitar. Mm -hmm. I would have preferred probably to have a cleaner sound, but, you know, uh, Peter K. Siegel was the producer. He was a really great guy. He was one of the nicest people I've worked with. And um, anyway, so Pete couldn't really land a, you know, a, a big label or anything like that. And ICM thought we would. Uh, we had Aziz Goxel from Atlantic pushing us real hard. He was trying to sell his, you know, his uncle, Ahmed Erdogan, on it. And, but he said, look, my uncle's now more into like sports teams and like buying soccer teams and shit, you know. <laughs> But we came pretty close, you know, and I'd had, a, I'd had other offers through the years. I've, I've, I was one of these people that always came just about, about a half an inch from signing with a major. Uh, and it happened a number of times where I had to call lawyers and say, so-and-so would make me an offer. One time I had one that was some connected to the mob, you know. This just goes back into New York, when, in the old neighborhood where I was living, when they were, it was the Genovese crime family that owned my block, basically. So they, they wanted to make me into a style, you know, you know. But are you going better? Are you a clean kid? And then I and I was almost almost signed by Buddha Records, uh, Phil Steinberg's old label. Buddha had had, you know, tons of success with uh, Lemon Spoonful, and Shauna Na was sort of their biggest act, I think, probably. So how but. does that make you feel? Because I know it's a tough thing. I mean, it's a tough thing to make it. But to be that close, and to be that close a number of times, knowing that there's interest, like how, did you, did you become bitter, or do you... No, I think what happened, my dad had always told me something that stuck. He said, be successful, but don't ever get too successful. You know, and that always stuck with me in a way, because he had a really good point, because if you, you get big success, it's hard. For instance, like I was good friends with, with John Belushi, like a lot of other musicians were at that time, but uh, and also some other people who got really famous, and wow, some of them aren't around anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, fame is a very difficult thing to handle, and I know from my own experience, when my first Blacktop album came out, or uh, Dresses Too Short, I went from playing little bars into playing big festivals for 5,000 people all over the world, it scared the pants out of me. I was not used to that kind of, uh, well, it was like being treated all of a sudden like, you know, I was hot shit, you know. <laughs> you know, like, 
that was the next big thing in a way, you know, right. and like that scared the pants off of me. And because I think you a, didn't believe it because it seemed fake to you. Because I think there's yeah, there's a part of you that goes, I wonder if I'm really deserving of this, right? And uh, at least that's what happened in my case. And I think sometimes with other people it probably is also, you know, you get up and you're you're in front of a you know, some big place and you think, oh my God, am I really that good? And as you get older and as you go through the experiences of life and stuff, that starts to kind of uh, dissipate. And your your idea of what you want and what you need change. And you start realizing that you're playing for yourself, that you're not really playing for the audience anymore. That was a big turning point for me. Can I ask when that would have been in when that came to mind? I had a friend in recovery uh, who, who, who really was a, helped me out a lot. And he, he was a great artist and you know he had, we had a, a lot of commonality. And he had said to me, he said, you know, you really just, you, you, when you make art, when you make music or drawing or painting, whatever you do, you do it for yourself. And if people like it because they'll fall in line because you like it, you're enjoying yourself. And I think for a long time I had fallen into the trap of sort of trying to trying to win over an audience and stuff. And that's a natural part of being a performer, but by the same token, you want to be you. In other words, you want to make art for yourself. Right. If you make it for everybody else, I'd be like, you know, it's like when I paint, it's like I can't just churn out the same style of painting. I, I can't do a an abstract work and go, okay, I'm going to make, you know, two years of this. <laughs> or like make another dress is too short. You know, like some people come up to me today and I have some guys that I know who are musicians that go, God, Bobby, your best album was early in the morning. Why don't you get back to playing like that? I go, well, that was 1984. I don't play like that anymore. I couldn't. I'm not, I'm not 40 years old. I'm 66. And or, or they say, why don't you make another dress is too short? <laughs> you know, it's like, I can't do that either. It was 1980, 89, 88, 89. So you can't, you know, you can't stay static. And, um, you know, you can't just recreate the same thing over and over again because, well, first off, you'll you go crazy and probably crack up, you know. But, but, but that, that, that point he was making was, they said, start, start doing it for yourself. But you the know. ten years or so around the blacktop years were really good for you. This they is were, when yeah. Changed. And so, did you ever get over that fear or that weird feeling of why have things changed or, like, how did you? You said you were scared. Well, I was out on the road all the time too. I mean, you know, I had probably four to five different agents, but, um, so I was touring a lot. And I'm not somebody who likes, I'm not a natural touring person. I'm not, I'm really not happy doing it. I, I like doing a little bit of it. Um, and it's something I had to find out on my own, you know, and I went out there like everybody else and, you know, I had my little truck and, you know, and uh, we drove 12 hours a day, drive all, we had a, an agency, uh, day and night productions, drive all day, drive all night. <laughs> we had James Cotton was on the, with us, with us, the same company, and uh, well, you know there was a whole bunch of us, and um, Ronnie Earl was with us for a while. And, but you know it was you know the twelve-hour drives and and uh, get into town, do a sound check, 
take a half hour nap maybe and then play your gig and get up and do the same thing the next day for, for the next month. And I did that for years and years and I just really wasn't all that satisfying really. I, by, the, by what happened finally it became sort of a money pit because I think uh, blues was starting to change around the late 90s and stuff and clubs were starting to get more of the weekend warrior bands who were playing locally that they could get for you know cheaper prices. Right. And there was really there's some really great weekend warrior bands. It's not I don't have anything against that. What I'm saying is that I think the climate started to change and shift, and European buyers for a lot of the festivals we were doing over there was starting to change, and they were getting a lot of rock acts that were using blues as a jumping off point to cross over. So there was that thrust, and if you look at it today, it's it's significantly changed a lot. Mm -hmm. The difference between like the Ann Arbor Blues Festival in 1969-70, and then even when John Sinclair took it over, and some of the famous festivals that still are in existence, like uh, King Biscuit down in Arkansas, there are very few of those. Right. Most of them are basically, I would call them baby boomer festivals, because they're really just having acts that are... Uh, popular with baby boomers. Uh, Byron Bay Blues Festival, we played back in 90 or 91, and I was looking on their calendar, I think, last spring, and I noticed Patti Smith was one of the headliners, and I thought, okay, I like Patti Smith, but why is she at the Byron Bay Blues Festival? It's not a blues act. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like her, actually. You know, I've always liked her and her band, but I, that's the change that's happened. So I, and, I, and I know a lot of the promoters through the years and a lot of the people who run the festivals, and they're sweet guys, a lot of them, but they really see that, they have told me flat out, they'll say, Bobby, I can't really have too many real blues guys because my audiences want like the latest young band that's playing a rock blues sort of style. But what I'm getting at, I guess, is that point of like departure from what used to be sort of a blues festival in the past is no longer. You know, so how do you come to terms with the fact that you, you spend months touring and you realize you don't really like it because it's hard work and it's not the greatest life and it's it's crazy hours and whatever. So with that, and maybe you turn it down a little bit, and then all of a sudden time passes, and and then you're not getting asked to as many blues festivals as possible. Well, I was getting worn down, I think, after a certain point because I was. Uh, I had two hand surgeries on my left hand. Uh, oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I had carpal tunnel following a surgery before that where I had a cyst on my index finger on my left fretting hand, and then carpal tunnel in that same hand. When I went back on the road, my hand had gone numb, and uh, I thought I'd had a heart attack, and it turned out that uh, I had carpal tunnel. My fingers were, my hand went numb. Mm. So they had to do uh, a surgical release, they call it. And um, so that was a scary episode. Because at this point, you're a full-time musician. This oh, yeah. Is your I had been for years, and then out on the road and stuff. But it had gotten to be like, there was a turning point in there where I think I was going out on the road touring and coming back with less money, you know, enough to even make the rent. Right. Um, we would go out for two and three and four weeks and come back. And by the time... You lost two or three gigs, maybe in that period of touring, which put a dent in your income. And you pay your guys, and you're paying your taxes and everything else. By the time I come back and repairs on the truck, it was just became a money pit after a while. And then I started renting trucks, and uh, to save money. And then it got 
same thing. Finally, it just sort of naturally petered out to the point where really I just started just taking gigs that were like in Europe and, uh, and festivals that would come here and there in the States and stuff. And that's sort of what I've kept doing. When I have a home base down at Terra Blues, um, and then I guess the rest of the time I, I got back into, into painting again, probably as a result, too, of uh, not working as much in the music sphere. So um, the painting is just a, another way of expression. So, and uh, How would you describe the way you approach your painting versus the way you approach your music? Is it similar? Is it completely different? I think different? it's very similar. I, you know, I, I, for myself, I see a lot of similarities between the two. Um, you have the same aesthetic problems in music that you do when you're making a painting. If you're, whether you're doing figurative or abstraction, you still have to find reference points. You have to deal with structure, the architecture of what you're making. When you make a solo or you're writing a song, for instance, you know you have to make sense of all the uh, architecture of the material. You have to know where to place a certain chord. Uh, how to place your solo, how far to go in the solo, when to pull back. Uh, when you're painting, it's exactly the same thing. It's like, okay, I, did, I made a blooper here. Uh, you hit an impasse. When you're making a painting, you go, oh, Christ, how am I going to get out of this? Mm -hmm. I painted myself into a corner, in a sense. You do that with music. and but the thing, I think with music, you can pull out of it a little bit better because maybe I've been doing it for so long that I can sort of pull out, but you could do it with art too. You just, there's little tricks that you, you know, you learn along the way where you can like patch something in, turn it sideways and see it from another angle, mm -hmm. you know, change your perspective, which is what you do in a, in a song too. And I write a lot of my own stuff in, in, over the last like seven years, so I don't have to rely on doing lots of covers anymore. And, um, it also saves money, you know, having to pay royalties. But also, I do it. I did it because I just got tired of um, doing somebody else's song and then feeling I had to come up with something uh, to top the original or whatever. But with your own stuff, you know, you can't really goof it up because it's yours. Do Do you, you know have the same passion for music as you did before? Mm, it's changed. It's different. I think because I play really more for myself now, and it's changed in a way. Like when I, I have an acoustic thing that I do uh, once a month, a terror blues. It's a I, I basically play a gut string uh, with a with a you know with a plug in it into an amp, and I have a bass player playing an acoustic version of a electric guitar. But it's you know it's acoustic, and I'm a drummer playing brushes, and that's one of my very favorite gigs, because it's different. I'm much more communicative to the audience. I tell jokes. I sort of do a David Letterman, you know, <laughs> you know, this thing. Mm -hmm. And I get to do the advantages of getting older in the music business, uh, I think in any kind of art form, is that you're allowed more liberties. You allow yourself to have more liberties. I mean, I'm glad that I'm, that I'm at my age that I can do that, and that I've survived this long. You know, mm -hmm. I hope I continue to survive, but it, one of the great things about aging is that you kind of go, wow, I can kind of do really what I want now. I don't have to. There's nobody I have to like owe my, my life to. You know, I don't have to subscribe to a certain kind of style. I don't have to. I can do whatever I want, really. Also, the fact that you know when you started, 
when you picked up the guitar at eight or whatever, and you really got into music at 12, to now look back and think, my God, I made this thing work all my life. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Well, there's a lot of rules in, in, in art and music and stuff. And as you get older and you're more experienced with them, you let go of the rules. You start developing more free forms and stuff. And you're making your own rules, in a sense. And then you break those. And then you keep doing that. You know, you do some of the songs I wrote four years ago, five years ago, like I'm Freaking Me Out, which I love. I think it's a really great album. Uh, but I could never do it Freaking Me Out again. I did Absolute Hell was the last one I did. Right. That went to, back to uh, download. We didn't put out a hard copy on that. Because there was a lot of experimental stuff on it, you know. And, I'll, and I may do more of that, or I may not. I may, I may go out and, you know, do another West Coast album, maybe do something at Greaseland or someplace. And um, I think I probably have another album in me, you know, or two. <laughs> Are you constantly writing? Um, I kind of go in spurts, and it's usually when I know I'm going to make a recording. That's usually when I'll go into the writing mode. Mostly what I've been focusing on playing-wise these days is ballads. And it's something that I really, particularly in my case, I feel as I've gotten older, uh, ballads are, are much more satisfying than when I was younger. It was almost like when you were a kid, you know, you kind of go, wow, a ballad. You know, I, I really want to be doing something fast, because, you know, that's what kids are all about. You right. want to play the fast lick. You want to get through the song quick. You want to, you know, you get older, and the, the nice thing is you kind of go, wow, I really appreciate playing a slow song. Now, I'm not talking about, like, you know, Sweet Little Angel or something. I'm talking about uh, it can be any kind of ballad, like whether it's a T-bone ballad, uh, like I Want to Walk With You, which I love to play, or, or some of the old Elvis stuff, you know. And uh, I mean, and lately I've been pulling stuff out of the top of my head, just, you know, Chris Christopherson ballads and things like that. And that's a freedom that I really like a lot, and uh, playing really quietly. I mean, I blew my ears out for like 50 years, so now when I, well, I like to play quiet, you know, yeah. for years people told me to turn down, and, you know. I'm, now you get it. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had listened years ago, you know. Um, my final question, tell me what music means to you at this point in your life. Well, I, you know, I, you're in my apartment, so you've seen piles of CDs, a lot of this stuff is classical, and... Uh, that's something I was not exposed to when I was a kid, and I got into it later in life, you know. And uh, it fascinated me because it opened up all the stuff that I had not known. I had been a jazz nut for years. I had been a country western collector, and, and when I got into the classical thing, it opened up all kinds of stuff, you know, everywhere from twelve-tone serial music from Schoenberg, you know, and Alban Berg and stuff, going all the way back to Handel and Bach. And then I got into opera and stuff. It means I think music is a central part of my life. I don't think I wake up to it, I work to it, I listen to it all day, and I go to bed with it. I love music, you know. I guess I love all. I love art, you know. I'll go to the museum and I'll stare at. Uh, I don't know. I'll look at a Cezanne painting for 45 minutes, the same painting. And with music, it's the same thing. It's like I just will listen to. You know, hide in the string quartets, Opus 20, you know, and listen to that whole set. And it's like, and then that, you know, for that period, that's where it's at, you mm -hmm. know. 
for, you know, if I'm in a really tough place, I'll listen to, you know, Beethoven's, you know, like the late quartets, I guess, you know, Opus 131 or something, you know, where it's like get down in the alley. Right. It's like Al, Al uh, Copley and I were listening to some, we were listening to some Beethoven uh, slow movements in the, um, I think it was the Emperor Concerto, you know, for piano. And he looked at me and he goes, that's the blues. You know, and you listen to that. You listen to Beethoven and like, you know, some of the old guys, Frank Zappa was right, he had that quote, he said, he said, you know, all the great, all the cool, all the really great music was already written by guys with wigs and stuff. <laughs> I love that quote, because it's true, you know. Or Bach, you know, like, yeah. how can you get more improvisatory than Bach? I mean, it's crazy, you know. There was interviews with his sons as, uh, before, they, before they died, and they, it was one of the famous interviewers in the 19th century interviewing guys who were still, you know, great composers and stuff, and they said, well, what was it like with your dad, you know, being, Johann, you, know, you know, the senior Bach, you know, Johann, Johann Sebastian Bach, and they said, well, you should have heard my dad, you know, because this was the time of Scarlatti and, and probably even later than that, Clementi and these guys. And uh, he said, well, you had to have heard my dad when he improvised, and he would just go on for hours, you know, and he would never repeat himself. Mm -hmm. And you think about stuff like that, mm. you know, and, and uh, you know, and Mo when I was in Vienna, I went to a couple of the Mozart houses, and it really impressed me to think that, like, he would take that piano out somehow, probably with a block and tackle, and go to go to his gig to do a concerto at St. Stephen's Church or wherever his gig was, and haul that thing back, you know? And, like, he sold his own subscription tickets to his shows, you know? <laughs> so these guys were doing the same thing, you know? <laughs> Bach had a, day, had, a, had a regular club gig, in a way, because they had to work for the church, mm. and churning out all that stuff. And then he had students. And uh, we all just get by the best we can, I guess, you know? Look at Matisse, he always kept a violin around the house in case, he, in case he started starving and couldn't feed his family. He could go out on the street and fiddle. <laughs> you know. But it's been a good journey. It's been a great journey. You know, I, I love the arts. Um, I started in the arts. I picked up a pencil and just started drawing at three and hitting blocks. And I've never turned back. I got, it's always part of me. You know, I mean, if, if I didn't have Music and arts, I don't think there would be a lot of purpose to be, for myself, to be on the planet much longer, you know. Well, I can tell that from this conversation. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. It's been a real pleasure. Well, Rocco, thank you. I, I, you know, it was a pleasure to do the interview myself. I don't get to do that many of them, so when I do, I, I, I jump at the chance. So. I appreciate you. it. Thanks. Yeah.